Hello and welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ryan Walker and with me, as always, is Agent 99, Ruben Williams. How are you today, mate? Uh, I'm fantastic. Thank you, Ryan. Does that mean I get to call you Maxwell Smart? I'm not too sure how many listeners out there would, would get that reference, but those <laughs> who are uh, our agent above, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely. Please do. The, the great man is, is is a quality operator, so um, <laughs> go ahead. But, hey, episode 99, weird. Nervous. Very weird. I'm nervous. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was going to say, obviously, very nervous. The nervous 90s are one thing, but 99 is another. Tell mm. us around the nerves around 99 because you're the only one on this podcast who knows that feeling. Yes, it's uh, it's it's terrifying. You're you're one away from a, from raising the bat, from taking the helmet off, from soaking in all the glory. But in one moment, you can you could lose it all. You you could trip up. So it's a it's a cautious time, but an exciting time nonetheless. And uh, we've we've been chatting, Ryan. We've been putting some plans in place for episode mm. 100. So fingers crossed. We get there because it's going to be an absolute beauty. So definitely one to look forward to. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, praying we get there, hoping we can get that. You know, hopefully we bring it up with a six, uh, not just a <laughs> single or, or something like that. So no, it'll be a ripper. The planning is in place and it's very exciting. Um, what's also exciting is today's episode. We've got Joel Seymour Hyde, who is the managing director of Octagon UK, which is a massive episode because we haven't really focused in on someone from an agency yet. So it was absolutely awesome to chat to him. What are some things that, that you really, really enjoyed about our chat with him? Well, I just loved hearing about life inside an agency. You know, he talked about all these different major, major sporting events, World Cups, Olympics, you know, continental tournaments. When you're in an agency, you get exposure to so many different sides of sport and so many different events. So the diversity uh, that they cover and the way that they operate was incredibly insightful to hear from someone who's been in been in that space for what 14 years now. Yeah, absolutely. I um I loved what he said about you know why rights holders and, and clubs out there need agencies. So sometimes you know if you, if you weren't really across what agencies are you'd probably look at clubs and be like, why do they need an agency? Why don't they just have people inside their business who can do the things that agencies do? And he puts it really, really well and and pretty crystal clear as to why agencies are so important. So that was really cool to listen to that one. Yeah, most definitely. And then the final one for me was, you know, to get those clients, to get the job with the World Cup, with the Olympics, you've, you've got to pitch to them. You've got to win the clients. Uh, and he spoke about the process of, of which they go through to, to get those major deals done, which then allows them to just go, as he said, higher, 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 and bring in all this, you know, entry-level talent predominantly. So to hear the process that that goes through was uh, incredibly uh, enlightening as well. Absolutely, mate. Well, grab a pen, enjoy this chat with Joel Seymour Hyde. Joel, welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Brilliant, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to be here. Our pleasure. You've um, it's really interesting to to talk to someone in the agency space. We haven't been here before. We want to start with a bit of a highlight, something memorable for you, because you've uh, you've been a part of it for fourteen years now. What's the most memorable project you've worked on in that time? Great, great, uh, easy question to start. Um, <laughs> I, think, 
I had to go a little bit nostalgic uh, for lots of reasons. And if you excuse it, it's kind of a project, but it's also was an event. I think, you know, for, for the UK, London 2012, so the Olympics in 2012 uh-huh. was just a phenomenal uh, summer. The, you know, you had everything. You had, you know, obviously great sporting memories created. You had uh, actually incredible weather, a brilliant atmosphere in the city. Um, so it's quite a magical time in London. And, and, you know, to be honest, compared to not, not even just COVID, but like British politics in the last couple of years, it feels almost a lifetime ago that you had, um, that type of attitude in the country. And then obviously around that, we had three or four clients, um, you know, involved in the Olympics. And running programs for clients in that whole period, you know, in the run up to the games, during the games, was just you know a, a real, I guess, sort of you know career privilege. And you know you can look back at it now and say, wow, that was you know incredibly fortunate to have a home Olympics land, you know, whilst you're working in sports marketing. And it's funny actually, like you know, as we were preparing for London 2012 there's a lot of Olympic knowledge that kind of moves from each Olympic Games onwards. So there's quite a lot of people you talk to around then who had been at Sydney in 2000 and, you know, some you know more experience been in the Olympic movement for a while. And they would talk about how incredible Sydney was and, you know, one of the great games and, um, and you know, the amazing moments, Cathy Freeman and everything else and just the, the vibe around the city. And you were sort of excited about it in advance, but not quite, probably understanding what that all meant and then the games come and you realize um and then you're getting to do it with clients as well it was yeah that was phenomenal so that's the answer for that one it was a, it was a, great, a great project great event I, I do recall team gb stepping up their performance for that olympics so it would have been incredible just to watch as a as a brit Yes, I, mean, I didn't even want to mention the medal table, but if you want to go there, then, you know, I'm prepared to. But yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously there's that whole sort of home Olympic bounce and what have you. But um, yeah, it, it was unbelievable. You know, we had we were fortunate. I think we had a well, clearly it's not it's not a complete coincidence. Obviously, there's a lot of you know programs developed to time you know, investment in athletics and 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 team sports to prepare for the games. So, yeah, some great performances on the track, you know, Mo Farah, Jess Ennis, um, even Greg Rutherford, who hadn't really jumped, you know, anywhere in his career and suddenly lands, uh, you know, a jump like that to win a gold on the same day as Farah and Ennis. Um, and even actually remember one of my big memories is it was almost the penultimate day of the game. So already the Team GB is doing really well. And Anthony Joshua was in the super heavyweight final on the same day as they were putting on a concert in Hyde Park to sort of wrap up the games. So we were in a pub by Hyde Park watching Joshua win his Olympic gold. And you could see that was the start of a superstar. And then walked across the road to watch Blur play in Hyde Park. And, you know, I mean, that's just... Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. So very rare, very privileged. And as you say, it was it had all the ingredients, you know, and you know that sort of British culture thing with the music and stuff. But then actually, yeah, athletic performance as well, which just, I think, really capped everything because it would have been great if we'd finished 10th in the medal table but it was even probably more magical with all those gold medals as well a sunny london games would just be amazing i I would would have loved to be around then that would have been absolutely awesome um joel tell us a bit about the early stage of your career and how you got your foot in the door in the sports industry Sure. So i'll go back to the start just because it probably gives a little bit of context uh to the journey so I did a sort of non-vocational degree, so did a history degree, so nothing, you know, to do with, 
a sort of specific vocational career. And that was really based on the advice of my parents that if you don't know what you want to be, do something you enjoy and you can work it out later. You know, they were quite liberal parents, so that was a good attitude to have. So, yeah, did that. Um, and then actually at university, I got into a secondee at place at PwC just to get some professional experience and ended up getting offered a job there for after uni. So I sort of went into financial services, not because I had a particular passion for it, but because it was um, available and a very good way to get me to London after university, which I was keen to do. Um, but, you know, very quickly realised that wasn't for me. And so there wasn't an obvious, you know, I knew my passions were around sports and entertainment and, you know, m- music, football, you know, rugby and and those sort of places. But there wasn't obvious an obvious route to kind of just go to get into those places. I mean, everyone knows it's obviously very difficult just to say, I want to go and work for MTV or, or Manchester United or whatever it is. So I was always also extremely interested in marketing, advertising, um, you know, communications. Just again, I was a writer from history and, um, interested in social behaviour and people, and so that felt like the most natural place to try and develop some of professional skills. So I applied for lots of grad schemes in the advertising world, and back then, bear in mind, this was you know 2001. Um, it was a bit more old school in some of the approaches to sort of grad recruitment. So in the end, it came down to two offers. One was for MediaCom, which is a media agency, so more on the media planning buying side, and one was for Low, which is one of the old sort of traditional ad agencies. And MediaCom were offering me a, you know, grad role. Low, uh, in true old school advertising agency fashion, were offering a unpaid internship for 12 weeks for, I think, 10 people, of which five would make the cut to have grad roles. So it was a sort of advertising hunger games and not being paid for it, um, which although it was an amazing agency and, and still produces amazing work, um, I had rent to pay in London, so that was not really an option. Uh, so, yeah, I went for the MediaCom route. And really, I mean, it was great. That was where I got all of my sort of grounding, you know, professionally in terms of, you know, I did my IPA, which is like Institute of Practitioners and Advertising qualifications, um, learned a lot about media planning, buying and media strategy. And then after about five years, I was starting, you know, I think classic mid-20s itch to think a bit more about what, what's going to make me sort of get up and be excited about the work I'm creating and what I'm creating it for rather than just, the, uh, you know, the process of the work I'm doing and I kind of got my head set on I want to work more in the sports and entertainment world um, rather than necessarily just go and work for another media agency which would kind of be doing the same job um, maybe for a little bit more money because you're moving around and yeah after a while eventually I just I mean it was just I'd been speaking to a few recruiters um, about media agency roles just to hear what was out there. And then one of them said, oh, I think I've, based on what you said before, I think I found an interesting job for you. It's at Octagon. They're a sports and entertainment agency. Do you want to have a look at it? And yeah, and that was it. Went across. So it wasn't a direct from grad leap into sports. It was a bit more of a kind of graft on the way. So I guess it took about five years from graduating. Um, but that allowed me to kind of move into a sort of a strategy manager job at Octagon and yeah and then the sort of career in sports uh, took off from there beautiful it sounds like you you had all that early experience in the agency advertising space you would have had exposure to the other side of sport being the clubs the leagues the governing bodies was there ever a temptation to to swap sides and if not what what kind of led you down the agency side 
I think to be honest, when I was obviously because I came, I started in, in in the media agency side. If you go that route, you're not really as aware of that whole ecosystem. When you work in in, in the media agency side, your your effectively your partners are media owners, so it's more like you know TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, magazines. You know, again, <laughs> I'm going back 20 years, so there were, you know there wasn't really amazing to think about. Really, there wasn't a it wasn't a Facebook, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't social. So it was just like a different media landscape. Um, so yeah, you, your, your ecosystem you thought about was more that way. So I think when I was thinking about jobs in sport, I just instinctively was thinking about probably the agency route being the route in and working from there and going there. And then if you wanted to have an end game of working for a sports club, it would probably be via getting your experience somewhere else first. So, you know, for my sins, I'm a Reading fan, uh, which is a you know, team in the championship. So I guess m- my friends would always tease me that, you know, yeah, you just want to, you want to be the Reading CEO when you grow up. That's like, you're, you're not going to play for them. So you can, you can run them instead. And, uh, you know, so, so even if you think about that as a sort of, you know, off the cuff like life ambition, for me, it was, it would always be, well, I'm not going to just go straight from Mediacom or wherever it is into, into a governing body club. It's going to be, via my agency and business experience that I build up. I think obviously now, I mean, there are much more opportunities to enter directly into the sports ecosystem at a junior level than there probably would have been 20 years ago, for sure. You know, just the maturity of rights holders, of clubs, of federations, the type of roles they need just lend themselves much more to junior recruitment. But again, if you if you imagine now, a decent sized rights holder probably has a you know has a genuine social department you know in terms of our social media digital website I mean that effectively did not exist and and a lot of those roles obviously suit more you know more junior entry level um, staff in any case so there's just a whole yeah a whole setup of of these organizations that now exist that didn't then so um, I think that that has changed significantly. I definitely noticed that maturity during my time at Cricket Australia because I, I remember when I joined, if you looked around at some of the roles, it was kind of like, we need this to be done, so let's create a role from it. And through like different restructures and different departments over time, you could see how they were trying to change things so that there was like a clear career trajectory for people to, to follow along so that people could start at a lower level and see a way that they could progress, whereas before I was kind of a bit horses for courses. So, yeah, having been on the inside of a right side, I can definitely kind of vouch for that maturity coming through. Joel, for, for those who uh, are listening and aren't aware, obviously we mentioned at the start we've never had someone from an agency on before. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the nature of agencies and how they operate compared to a club or a governing body? Sure. Um, and, again, pretty good to start with, I'll just describe a bit about how what Octagon is now, because um, obviously there's lots of different types of agencies, and I think it's good to, to contextualise. So Octagon, from a heritage point of view, would have been described as a you know a sponsorship, a global sponsorship agency, or sports marketing agency, or sports entertainment agency. Now that's the sort of you know territory that you traditionally um, associate with us. I think probably what's important is to just take a moment to explain how we've slightly evolved in the last five years. So we would now describe ourselves as a creative agency with a specialism in sports and entertainment. And that's an important distinction because it's 
created a lot more, I guess, range of type of work, type of role, type of thing we do as an agency. And it makes us quite unique. So effectively, it means that we're probably, we're doing a lot of the work and having a lot of the skill sets you'd expect to see in a, in a traditional creative agency. Um, but we also combine that with um, all the sort of skill sets and experience you'd expect to find in a, in a big sponsorship agency. So that's probably important context. And then in the end, an agency is defined by its clients and its people, you know, and its culture. They are the, the components. So if you don't have the clients, you can't make any money and you can't grow. But if you don't have brilliant people delivering work for those clients, you're not going to keep them in any case. And and then the thing that keeps the, the people there is, you know, the work you're doing, the type of work you can create for your clients and the culture you have as uh, as an agency to, to work together and enjoy each other's company. Um, and so, that, you know, those are the three component parts. And I think that is one of the biggest single differences between agency and, and, and rights holder is an agency's job is to create brilliant work for its clients. A rights holder's job is in the end, it's to deliver on the field. You know? And I think that there's lots of stuff that goes into rights holders now and you know, lots of other things that are, that are massively important. But in the end, that on field performance is the crux of you know, what rights holders about probably combined with depending on their responsibilities you know grassroots and development of the sport so i'll I'll come back to that in a sec so from an agency point of view i think you know what it means is again like right so lots of departments but you know our departments are really focused around sort of client service and then delivery in different forms so it could be creative planning hospitality events pr social and they will all be different teams um, effectively providing specialist skill sets managed by the client service team who are kind of you know working day to day of the client um, to develop the work and, and then you know deliver it across all those different executions. So you know typically the culture is obviously it sounds cliche but it's true you know it's it's fast paced it's quite intense um, it's quite young you know in terms of um profile but also i think just sort of attitude and energy levels and you know no no two days are the same because you have clients across all different sports and um different seasons they work to different timings different campaigns they're working on there's 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 less of that sort of sense of like there's a pinnacle event coming it's much more just stuff going on across the business all the time but yeah ultimately as i say i think that that sense of you know clients being who you're delivering work for and your people being your product because if your product's not working you'll never deliver the performance um is the unique the unique piece of, of of the agency world um and i guess on the rights holder side yeah i think the two big differences i guess and this depends on type of rights holder you know so if you're a professional team the ambition is to deliver a winning team on the field and everything around it is is fundamentally aimed on that focus and yes you know of course we've seen stuff recently there's people in the business who will be trying to grow it through you know lots of different ways and build fans in different countries or whatever it may be but on the field is still you know there's a deference to the on on the field whether it's uh, how the players are treated or how much they're paid you know they are the sort of clear stars and that's quite different then if you're a federation you, you know, you have the double challenge, I think, of not only that deference to your 
on-field performance, but also that responsibility to the game as a whole in your in your market and growing it. So, you know, you typically would see a rights holder talk about, you know, the on-field and the grassroots. And in the end, everything they do um, commercially otherwise is, again, to kind of, you know, support those two factions. So the FA is a good example in the UK where it's a non-for-profit makes you know has high revenues because of broadcast and the size of the country and population interest in football and everything else but in the end if you look at their kpis you know number one will be win a world cup or win a euros win a tournament i think they actually just released a new manifesto and that was point number one um but then point number two will be you know grow the game across all parts of society so at the moment obviously there's big focus on um you know gender balance and getting more people from different backgrounds into sport and giving them access and facilities. And that's going to be the you know, other key driver of federation. So it's quite, yeah, it is those big, I think, I guess sort of lofty strategic goals that are very different between an agency and a rights holder ultimately will mean the sort of dynamic of what's important in the business and how it operates will also be quite different. So, how come rights holders can't do that work for themselves? I mean, how come sponsors can't do that work for themselves either if they're trying to work together? I've been asked that many times, so it's certainly not a dumb question. So, I mean, the answer is some clients do. They will try not use agencies. And it depends, you know, on what the client's trying to achieve, you know. So, in the end, it would be the – I think the simplest way to think about it would be, you know, most clients don't try and produce their advertising themselves. They use advertising agencies. And they use advertising agencies because they do not employ the skill set in-house to – it's not their specialism to create advertising work. You know, their specialism is to make amazing pet food or sell amazing financial service products or, you know, whatever it is. That's their specialism. So trying to create advertising work in, internally but also – there's lots of other reasons around like, you know, creative ambition and, you know, sort of talking in an echo chamber because you're inter- in- internal. You need somebody external to come and say, no, this is what you're about. This is what's happening in the market. This is what people are doing. This is what we're seeing. This is how you change your, your business. Um, people accept that as, as the model. It's exactly the same in the sports world in, in, in a number of ways. So firstly, like, you know, a lot of work we do is not is now creating campaign work for clients who sponsored events. So if, if Hotels.com and Expedia sponsor the Champions League, they will want to produce TVCs and social content and executional ideas around those sponsorships, and we will create that work for them. Exactly the same as advertising agency. And then you get to experiential. And again, a, a, spon- a, a client is not going to have in-house an experiential delivery department because why would they? They make... You know, they're a bank or they're a pet food company or they're a sell deodorant. So why would they employ a salaried staff experience teams? It's not logical. Um, so, again, they're going to outsource that to a specialist agency who knows how to operate in that space. And obviously, when it's in our world, we know how to operate in the right side of the ecosystem. And then there's also just a, a time thing of, you know, they have a day job. Often sponsorships come on top of the day job and they don't have the time or experience of liaising and negotiating day to day with rights holders about getting things away. So ticket management, asset management, approvals, all of these kind of nuts and bolts sponsorship things, which are not necessarily the most glamorous, but are massively important. Again, you know, a lot of clients won't be set up to deal with that. Now, some are now, and, what you tend to find is 
the clients that um, actually probably, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but it's just how it plays out, who have less ambition creatively to execute campaign work for their sponsorships and really just want the sort of brand awareness and tickets and assets, those clients are more likely to try and do it in-house because what they re- all they really need is like a, you know, a, a smaller team who can service asset management requests and approvals. And if they're not going into the, um, you know, campaign, creative, experiential, on-site delivery world, they can they might be able to handle that themselves. Um, but any clients with a bit more ambition will tend to use an agency. And then on the rights holder side, again, same trend, like lots of rights holders are building out effectively what you call partnership service teams. And lots of rights holders will say to clients, you don't really need an agency to do that. We can do that for you. And obviously, there's lots of reasons why they want to do that. I mean, for one, it gives them more control and they can try and guide it because sometimes agencies can be a pain because agencies are pushing for new ideas and you know pushing the boundaries and also know because of things they've done with other rights holders, what can and can't be done, what's possible. And that can be quite you know annoying to, to a rights holder. But... Ultimately, rights holders have become very good now branding themselves and marketing themselves and producing campaigns to talk about themselves. Um, and that's fine because they understand their sport and their fans intrinsically. But that doesn't that doesn't translate to being able to build campaigns for their clients. Um, it's a little bit of a conflict of interests. And a rights holder is not going to be inclined to push the creative boundaries and limits of what can and can't be done for its own sponsors because it's making you know almost too much work for itself. So, again, it's a trend and it will happen on some occasion, but my personal view, and I may be biased, is it doesn't create the best work. So it's like our sponsors come along and they've bought a brand new Ferrari, but they just need someone to show them how to get the most out of the Ferrari. Brilliant, Ruben. Um, oh, thank you. Just came up with that one. Yeah, <laughs> no, just off the tongue. Um, Joel... <laughs> Are there many entry-level opportunities in agencies and, and what does the internal trajectory look like for, for an agency such as Octagon? So I guess, yes, there are. I mean, you know, agencies in general, most don't necessarily run like what I'd call like a consistent like grad program anymore. Like, you know, again, even when I started 20 years ago, PBC is a much bigger employer than than, than Octagon. So, you know, who knows, 10,000 employees in the UK, Octagon's got... 150 so it's a different model but they would have like a classic sort of you know grad intake every september agencies even the bigger creative agencies don't necessarily work that way it's a bit more in the end um driven by growth and growth can come at you know any time so the the way agencies work is it's always you, you make investments in certain areas of the business of course but in general um you're hiring you know, you might hire a couple of, you know, a few people each year to keep sort of, you know, new intake. Um, but then sometimes growth could suddenly come in April. You win two or three new clients and you just need two or three new junior positions. You're not, you're not going to wait to like September to bring them in because that's when your grad program is. You're, you're going to bring them in immediately. So there's not necessarily the same consistency to when, you know, you apply. And that might, you know, some agencies that might be different, but in general, I think, even if you do run a January intake, which we tend to do to a degree, like we always have a few new joiners at a graduate level in January because we've got a new year's scope starting. 
um, at any point during the year, based on client growth, we could add to that. So there's not a perfect time. Um, I think one of the great things about Dynamic, as I explained, of how an agency like ours is set up now, where you've got this mix of things we deliver, the, you know, the, the, the big campaign work combined with the more traditional delivery and experiential and hospitality and on-site work and asset management work means there's a big range of opportunities and skill sets. And by always having that work to do around major events, you're always going to need those entry-level positions to get you in. And so what we try and do, be quite non, you know, non-specific in terms of which direction someone will go in when they join. So if you think about our big departments, so we have as talked about we have client service, we also have project management, which is you know, delivery, creative planning, design, content production, and so on. So you've got all the different skill sets, but the, the, I guess the entry-level roles will tend to be typically in client service, and then people can go on a trajectory where they stay in client service, or what sometimes happens is if they've shown more interest in um, sort of the creative world, then there's a route towards delivery and project management, which is when you are helping produce and create the campaign work. And the other piece is the, the sort of hospitality and events side of the business, which, you know, had a horrendous year last year, um, obviously, because there weren't any events to host that, um, has come back quite strongly this year. We've hired quite a few grads in that space because, you know, last year was last year. Um, and that is very classic sort of entry-level work because it's about asset management and being on site and helping out events and delivery. And again, that might not necessarily be the route someone wants to take for the whole career, but it's a great way into the industry. It's a great way to build exposure. And it's a great way to understand the kind of dynamics of an agency and start to see where you fit. So we, we're we very big on, you know, not sort of pigeonholing people into like linear routes. So um, we want to encourage movement around. We've actually just had a couple of like senior account execs move into project management roles, which is sort of exactly what you, you want to see happening as a business. So, yeah, there are certainly probably more traditional places to enter. But I'd say it's probably, you know, there's less entry into, say, the creative team, because again, you know, we would tend to hire creative duo who've come out of an, an art school and had a couple of placements at agencies and then they would come in. So that's, a, that's, that's almost like a whole different route in, but that does exist as well now. So if there's anyone listening who is a, you know, a creative and is thinking they have to go and try and work for Saatchi's or AMV or, you know, whoever it may be, actually agencies like ours now are also looking for that type of talent. So, um, yeah, there are lots of different routes in now depending on skill set. I, I want to go back a little bit to what you said around how the, the scope of work at the start of the year determines your headcount, which is a pretty common thing. Yeah. But I think one thing that uh, people might not consider when they're looking thinking about jobs in sport is that how the jobs available in sport increase outside of just a tournament that's in town you know people might think oh the cricket world cup is is coming to australia or england and there's going to be jobs with the icc or the ecb and cricket australia but in reality there's going to be all these agencies that support them that are going to need more people too so that's i think one thing worth keeping in mind for people who might be thinking about where in the world do i want to work because there's all these opportunities that, that that come with those events 100%. 100%. So, I mean, I mean, again, like the, the Olympics is the greatest single example of that. You know, like London 2012 just caused an absolute boom in the industry on all sides, you know. So there were loads of jobs going at LOCOG, 
that the job's going at all the sponsors or, you know, had lots of domestic sponsors. So you had this whole domestic sponsorship program where, you know, every sort of effectively British, British based company, BP, BA, you know, et cetera, et cetera, was um, lining up to sponsor it. So a huge investment. All of those, all that sponsorship investment then leads to agencies having more clients, which leads to them needing more people. So London 2012 was the absolute peak of that. Um, we actually, as an agency, have always done very well around World Cups. So we've grown offices quite significantly around that. So Brazil in 24th, you know, that it, Brazil had an Olympics and a World Cup back to back. So we grew an office there from five to 100 people over that period. <sighs> Tokyo, we've grown a lot, although, again, Tokyo has been tricky, obviously, for lots of reasons. Um, but it's still an office that's grown there around uh, 2021 Olympics. Um Russia, again, we built an office in Russia around the Russia World Cup, so zero to 50, and there's still an office there now which is built off the back of the success of the World Cup. So, yeah, it's um, you can certainly map the big, you know, the mega events, as I've called them, which is really World Cups and Olympics, and, and then you've got the next tier, which would be like Rugby World Cup, Cricket World Cup, and, and piggyback off those for sure. But those mega events 100% drive that. And, yeah, it, it's, it's because it's the whole ecosystem is impacted. Effectively, the trajectory is you get a, a rights holder who then needs to scale up to deliver a tournament in that market. Then the next thing they do is try and acquire sponsors. So they get lots of sponsors locally for that event. So then those sponsors have to hire and they'll do some internal hiring. And then the next thing they'll do is employ agencies. And then all of those agencies will be scaling up because the way agencies work is effectively... <laughs> You very rarely try to have spare resources. It's just not. It's just not how the agency business model works. Um, it doesn't just doesn't really allow you to have, you know, too many resources that could work on client work that aren't working on client work. So their agencies will kind of wait until they win the clients, and then when they win the clients, they'll then go higher, higher, higher. Um, so and again, those type of hires around delivery at major events will often be. Um, more entry level because you're going to need the bodies, um, and you know. Whereas, say, with them delivering the campaign work around those clients, you know, the creative teams and planning teams are probably already in place to kind of manage that. They might hire a couple of people or freelance certain skill sets, but it's certainly on the event side that the sort of you know, the, the junior positions tend to really scale up um, when those events come to town. So yeah, it's a good if you're prepared to travel uh, and you know have a language or two then looking at the sort of, you know, the event horizon for big major events um, is a good way. So, I mean, obviously, you look at the US, I mean, they're going to have an absolute boom in hiring for World Cup 26 and LA Olympics 28. Um, so that's going to, I mean, they are going to be phenomenally huge events, which are very exciting. Um, not easy necessarily to go and work in, just drop a hand, go and work in LA, but it's a good example <laughs> If you were a young sports guy in L- or girl uh, in LA, you would probably be feeling quite positive about the next few years for sure. You mentioned their winning clients and that for a lot of listeners will be something of interest. What, what is sort of the, and I, I know you could probably talk about this for hours and hours, but in a nutshell, what is the process of winning a client? Are, are you directly involved in that or like who in your team really controls that process? How does it all work? Sure. So there's, there's effectively two ways to keep it really simple to win a client. One would be through direct and sort of networking relationships. 
and the other would be through a formal what you call an RFP process. So the first is, you know, again, it's definitely a big part of my job is you've got to be connected and out there in the industry, talking to brands all the time, understanding what they're up to and trying to use those relationships with brands and the rights holders if they're, if they're speaking to brands and, they, and the brand needs help um, to effectively create opportunities where you can obtain a new client through like, good conversations and talking about your skill sets and how you could help and, and not go through what you call a, a formal pitch. The second way, which is probably overall, you know, just as common, is the formal pitch process, which is when a client says, well, we now, we've identified now that we need an agency to help us with X skill set. It could be to help us find a sponsorship. It could be the more commonly from pitching point of view, it's we've now acquired this big sponsorship and we need an agency to help us develop campaigns and work to bring it to life. And a formal pitch involves a few stages. So, you know, you'll hear the name RFI or RFP thrown around a lot. So RFI, Request for Information, which is normally the first, like, filtering stage. So what you might have there is an RFI goes out to 10 agencies asking them to present credentials to show how they're relevant for the um, work. The client will look through those and maybe create out of those 10 a shortlist of five. Uh, those five will then get taken through to the RFP stage, which is the request for proposal, which is when you actually, they give you a brief and you then have to go away and present your response to that brief. Normally a mix of sort of who you are, how you work and ideas to show how you would execute the brief. If you're lucky, that's it. Uh, If you're unlucky, uh, there might be another stage of like a final two where the best two agencies thus far then get to, you know, re sort of refine and adapt their work based on feedback from the client, represent that work, and then hopefully have a winner. Um, but before you're announced as a winner, there's probably also normally a financial discussion as well to kind of agree on terms. So it's a pretty brutal process. It's very loaded on the client's favor, which is obviously. Uh, a cause of you know consternation many times for um for agencies um but you know no one's come up with a perfect better model thus far so unfortunately we keep still doing you know we still keep on doing it and and probably will for some time because it's uh it is the model that everyone's familiar with but yeah it's um it's a real high and low thing i always talk about there's a there's a sort of pitch roller coaster which is there's a big adrenaline at the start, like we've got this new opportunity, we get the team together, we start working, you know, the late nights start happening. Then normally about sort of four days before the pitch, there's a, a massive crash of, oh, my God, these ideas are terrible, this is going to be a disaster, we haven't got enough time, what are we going to do? And you, hit the bottom, you sort of hit the bottom of the roller coaster, and then there's this sort of collective energy, everyone comes together again, there's probably a few more late nights, and you get it all in place, and then you have the pitch, which is a, big like adrenaline surge you come out of the pitch feel amazing like you know there's, there's a good energy because you nailed it um and then there's this very strange sort of period of silence when not much happens afterwards and you're desperate for feedback and typically the general rule of thumb is the longer you don't hear the worse the news is going to be um what you always want is reasonably quick questions back whether it's um technical ones about what you wrote or it's financial ones and if you don't get those, it tends to be a bad sign. And obviously, if you win, there's a great moment to sort of celebrate and, and come together. And again, I think in agency culture, there is this sort of sort of war room mentality around the pitch itself, which is um, exciting. 
and you know we do always make a big deal about celebrating well, again when you can be together celebrating those wins because it is part of both celebrating the work you do together but also how agencies grow and the biggest way to grow is normally through big pitch wins um and again one big thing is the relationship route to new business is obviously great because you avoid all that lost that sunk cost on the pitch but the 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 initial sort of project size tends to be much smaller because you've not had to go through a formal process so what you tend to do if you go for the relationship route is a first smaller project and then try and organically build it into a, a big size client. Whereas if you go through the pitch way, the size of the prize tends to be bigger, but obviously the chance of winning and the effort that goes in, chance of winning is much smaller and effort that goes in is much higher, which is obviously a difficult combination. But if you win two or three big formal pitches a year, your agency will definitely be growing in size. Sounds like you've been through your fair share of pitches and also just hearing like the, the scope of events and properties that you've worked with, like the range of work is uh, immense. We, um, we strongly advocate for grads executing their own ideas in more easily accessible environments such as, you know, a grassroots club. What's one idea that you've seen rolled out on a massive budget that you reckon someone who's got a bit of motivation and a bit of creativity could replicate in a grassroots club yeah it's a very good question i think i think for me like the probably in grassroots there's two big areas which i think are you know are really interesting you know one is about facilities and one is about profile of person and they're both things i think we're really passionate about so you know we've seen some really nice campaigns over the years so budweiser did a really good one called club futures which was about helping the local clubs improve their facilities to then, you know, give them a better chance to go up the football pyramid. Um, and with Mars at the moment, we're running a program which is around bursaries to help ethnic minorities get into coaching uh, in, in, in youth football. So, you know, there, I think it's almost not the size of the campaign that's important. I think at the moment what's important is the what difference you're trying to make. Um, and that's when you get the motivation and energy and excitement, you know, because you can have kind of fun grassroots campaigns. But actually, I think at the moment, more than ever, if I was going to pick one area, it, it is about the diversity point. Um, you know, I didn't really touch on it on our recruitment, but it's a massive thing that we have to be more focused on and more responsible for at the moment. Our industry isn't necessarily got a history as being the most diverse employer, and we're really focused on addressing that at the moment. And try to ensure we get a much more diverse candidate base for anything we, we look to hire for. But then that equally applies to, you know, grassroots and rights holders that, you know, the way these sports will be a success and grow and actually you know, add value to society is by reaching a wider base of people. So I think, you know, if someone has a responsibility at a grassroots level, trying to encourage a more diverse mix of participants is massive. So I'm actually a, coach of an under eight rugby team here in in the uk uh, mainly because my son plays for them so you know uh, that squeezed me into the coaching roster <laughs> um but you know even under eights we have an issue with and we're in south london so actually we've got a reasonably good sort of ethnicity diversity to, to the team but gender's obviously already fallen off a cliff like we i think when we started coaching under sixes there was quite good number of girls playing but it's really decreased by under eights and that's something we're 
like you know again it's voluntary we don't get paid for it but we're proactively trying to you know address that as a sort of grassroots area that needs some focus because it's um it's such a good sport um and has so many benefits like physically and mentally uh, and it doesn't need to be a boys sport at that age at all you can have mixed games for sure so we're working quite hard on that so so yeah i think i would always just think about it from the perspective of think about the wider social benefit and there's little things you can do that can really you know make those you know clubs or facilities work better awesome joel well, we might leave it there but thank you so much for spending tonight or i think it's the day there at the moment um just hearing about life inside octagon and you know from someone as experienced as you has been absolutely awesome especially i, I loved your your discussion there about how to win the client it was perfectly put in a nutshell uh, I feel like we could have spoken for a few hours on that. But thank you so much for joining us and, and good luck to Reading next season in the championship. As usual, we will need it. So thank <laughs> you. Um, I'd love to speak to you both. And thanks, yeah, for making your time in the evening as well. I'm sure it was a, a long day in the office as well. So I appreciate that. All righty. Well, that ends our chat with Joel Seymour Hyde. And that was absolutely awesome, Rubes. Uh, what are some key takeaways? Yeah, covered a lot in a short period of time with Joel. But I think one of the things that people at home could be looking to do after this is just to, when you're doing your job search, just start to broaden your horizons. There are lots of opportunities in the agency land outside of the rights holders. A lot of people aim for the clubs, aim for the governing bodies. The agencies give you access to those touch points in a whole range of different sports. So I think when you're researching what career options might suit you, you know, open up to the idea of what an agency could uh, could lead you down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I took away was just how how far in advance they're planning in terms of the sporting calendar. So, you know, if I'm someone out there, I'm like, well, say in two years' time, I'm probably graduating uni, I'll be looking for an entry-level job. Where are all the big sporting events going to be at, at this point? Or if you don't want to move global or you don't want to look at that, think about what's in Australia in the next in the next few years or next few months or whatever it is. Um, because as you just said there, Rubes, like the events and where they are will automatically bring in a lot of organizations around sport. It's not just, I don't know what you think, maybe like international soccer tournaments. It's not just the FFA who are, who are needing people. Uh, there's going to be agency around that of sponsors and, and all kinds of things. So, Keeping track of the sporting calendar, I think, is is an underrated tool and it's always going to inform you for what's out there and what might be coming up. So, I'd be keeping track of that quite closely. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the other things that's probably going to help you as well is having an understanding of how the agencies work, knowing what process they have to go through to get to the get the clients. And so, I think if you if you can um, look into the RFP process that, that Joel spoke about, you're going to be better positioned to actually demonstrate your understanding. And um, Ryan, I'm not sure if you're aware, very early into my time at Crick Australia, I was thrown into an RFP there because there was no one else from the digital department to uh, represent Crick Australia. I think uh, Finn Bradshaw, the head of digital, had better things to do. My manager, Mike, was off somewhere else, so they pointed the finger at me after I was about a year into my time there and said, all right, Ruben, can you go in and, and fly the flag for, for digital in this um, RFP for, for insights? And uh, I remember being a part of this live Google Doc that had like a whole set of criteria and 
in that Google Doc was the opinions of everyone else in the room. Everyone was like making comments live of what they thought of different parts of the process. And I remember being like incredibly embarrassed because like they would say one thing and I would jot down, oh, yeah, this looks good. And then someone with, you know, a lot more experience and intelligence in that space would be like, oh, I'm so not impressed with that. And I was like, oh, God, I've clearly got no standards when it comes to this space. So I, I learned a lot through that through that process. Wow, talk about thrust into it, mate. It's, uh, I mean, good experience though, amazing. So, you've obviously learned a lot and now you're fully aware of the RFP process. So, Yeah, not uh, sure how much I added to it but uh, it was, yeah, good to be a part of <laughs> I'm sure you contributed in your own way. So, <laughs> well done to you, Sledgehammer. Um, anyway, we better head. Uh, reminder, next episode is episode 100. So, we're hoping to get the quick single off the legs to get the big ton and, and raise the bat and we can raise the helmet as well because it is a ton. So, Absolutely. we'll see you for episode 100 but thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.